So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests involved in writing and publishing. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to everyone who has backed and shared the Kickstarter for New Edge Sword and Sorcery, which, as I record this, is just about 75% funded with a little under two weeks to go. Oh, God. <laughs> My emotions. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we'll see what those emotions are like by next episode, because I think I think that'll go up after the... Um, after the thing is over, so we'll see what happens. Meanwhile, I would also really like to thank the Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Thank you so much. If you're listening and think you would like to help keep the show rolling, then please go to just you know support my writing in general is what it goes towards. Go check out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get access to episodes a whole week early. They also get monthly writing reports on whatever I'm working on, such as the titular novel, but other things too and get access to a large archive of So I Wrote a Novel, the bonus podcast where I've done chapter-by-chapter chapter sort of readings and DVD commentary on the chapters of my first two novels, as well as new episodes that come out whenever there's something new of my writing to talk about, such as the story I sold to Whetstone Magazine last year. Speaking of magazines, we are continuing Magazine Month because, you know, I'm trying to fund my own thing, so why not talk to other people who have been down that journey one way or another themselves? Last time we spoke with a couple of the people from the editorial staff of Old Moon Quarterly. This time around, we are speaking with Matthew Gomez, one half of the duo behind Broadswords and Blasters. While Old Moon Quarterly was a brand new publication that's still, you know, figuring out its feet and where it's going to go and how it's going to all end up, Broadswords and Blasters ran for 12 issues and then, sadly, uh, died. Um, but it is making a intriguing comeback in a different form, something we'll talk about with Matthew, who I would like to mention was someone who was very kind in giving me advice on this whole so you want to do a magazine thing, huh? thing. Actually, uh, I think before I spoke with Howard Energy Jones from Tales from the Magician's Skull. So yeah, he was actually there. He was the first person to give me advice on the long path towards what I'm doing with New Age Sword and Sorcery. Pretty cool. Pretty cool guy. Let's go hear what he has to say about his whole journey with the magazine routine. Accidentally opening iTunes, a key interview move. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right, there we go. Got my questions. And here I am with Matthew Gomez. Hey, Matt. Hey, how are you? Doing well. It's really fun to be doing this with you, especially because as we were chatting a little before, uh, we actually had a little email exchange a couple of years ago where I was like, I'm thinking about doing a magazine. Do you have Don't any advice, do Matt? Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> are, you sure? are you really, really sure that you want to do that? <laughs> oh. oh, dear. All right. So why don't we start nice and broad here? You know, Broadswords and Blasters advertises like a pulp storytelling magazine. Nope. But what does pulp storytelling mean to you? What, what is pulp to you? So when we were originally talking about doing the magazine, uh, we were really looking back at the old weird tales, Black Mask 
kind of stories. Uh, so Conan, uh, Cull, uh, even some of the Seabury Quinn stories. I mean, if you go back, go back, uh, Clark, the early Clark Ashton Smith in Lovecraft. And it was making the stakes personal to the character, mm-hmm. uh, but also putting action forward for the stories. Because uh, a lot of times when you read a current science fiction or fantasy story, there's not a whole lot of action that necessarily gets embedded into the story. Uh, and the stakes can be, especially when you're looking at uh, what's going on in books for storytelling mm-hmm. in that, it's these huge stakes. It's end of the world stuff. And it's yeah, not like MCU, end of the movie, big blue sky yeah, thing. You know, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a place for that. There's a time and place for that. Absolutely. Uh, but what we really wanted to focus on was make the stakes personal to the characters, make them meaningful, but also put action front. Uh, by what, so something actually has to be happening in your story to make it a story. It's not just, we're going to sit here and talk about the story, then somebody pushes a button at the end and that resolves the problem. That's not, that's not <laughs> all. Uh, yeah, I dig and it. Be, and, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of some of the stories we got and some of that, what we pushed back against were the quote unquote engineering stories where the guy with the big brain kind of shows up and does something mechanical to fix the problem. And that solves the problem. Like that's not what we're, that's not what we're after here. We want something where somebody's in direct conflict. Yes. There's going to be swords. There's going to be gunfire. There's going to be action embedded in part and parcel of the story. Awesome. Yeah, no, I really dig that. And I always, I understand why, because lesser stories do do this, but I understand why some people think when they maybe hear a description like what you're giving, oh, you mean we got to have some like brainless storytelling. We got to have just like, you know, some characters say hi, and then there's a fight and then it's over and like whatever. And I always push back hard on that because I think yeah. you're not reading good action if that's what you think action is. You're you're not reading the kind of action that is A, just, you know, thrilling and fast moving, but also tells you about character and conveys tone and plot and everything at the same time is having the cool sword fight gunfight whatever absolutely you know i, I yeah uh, I, mean, I mean the other thing with it especially when looking at sword and sorcery type stories or even mm-hmm. cosmic horror type stories what's the appeal of those stories and people go on about oh because it's visceral and it gets your blood pumping and everything else and there, i forget the quote exactly who said it but sometimes but somebody was like sometimes you just want a big fucking monster yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, like that, those kind of, that, yeah, sometimes you just want that in this, in this. <laughs> so, and, yeah, you, and, the, you want the weird. Yeah. And, and, and the other part of it as well was there are so many problems that everybody faces in their kind of day to day life mortgage, kids, job, dealing with your in laws, what have you, that sometimes you want a problem that is okay that you can face head on and defeat Mm -hmm. and there's something Mm -hmm. very satisfying and um, a little bit cathartic about that in reading in that in that in a story because there's so little of that in their own personal lives (laughs) yeah i i read almost like 80 sword and sorcery novels in 2020 i wonder what that was about (laughs) (laughs) yes there's probably we can defeat easily and succinctly (laughs) it's done Oh man! All right, I like that. I, like, I think it's a good definition. Um, so, broadswords and blasters. What was the origin story of the magazine? Uh, so, Cameron Mount, who's my co co-editor and partner in this, and I were part of a online role playing forums doing play by post role playing games uh, back in the early late late aughts into the early twenty tens, um, and we we got just got talking and we were in a couple of the same games together and oh there's always the ooc channel 
and talking about stuff that we were doing. And I was, I was actively trying to sell stories uh, of a sword and sorcery nature and getting not and getting no traction. Uh, he was writing more uh, retro science fiction. So sort of love sorted planet type of stories and getting even less traction than I was. And the idea was, Hey, you know what? There's probably other people like us who are having trouble getting stories out there. Maybe we should do our own magazine. And so we kicked that idea around for about th maybe three or four years. And then we finally decided, you know what? Neither one of us is getting any younger. If we're going to do this, we really ought to just pull the trigger and do this. Uh, so Broadswords and Blasters started out. That was our quote unquote dummy title until we could think of something better. And we <laughs> never did. I do that all the time. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, this will be. Yeah, we're, this is just our placeholder. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll think of something better later on. And then we, by the time we actually got around to it, it's like, you know what? Neither one of us is going to think of anything better than broadswords and blasters. Because uh, it really did just kind of go with what we were looking for in a very succinct way. And it was people. Pe when you pick that up, you know what you're going to get. And, they, and that was our oh, that was our other goal was that we weren't going to lie to people. We we're going to say broadswords and blasters, and then give you a twenty page introspection on the necromancy happening on Australia Five. And at the very <laughs> end of this piece, you might get a little parable. No, that's not no no that's, that's not what this is about. <laughs> not at all. Um, so we really wanted to be upfront and center with where we were going with the magazine. Um, so. Back in, I think, 20, we started talking about 2016, 2017s when we really launched. Um, and we had an idea, okay, we'll put out an open call. Maybe we won't get anything as far as submissions go. Because we're two guys. We don't really have names out in the community or in the scene mm -hmm. about uh, as writers or anything else. We're probably not going to get anything. Well, what we forgot was that we were saying we were willing to pay people for their stories. Yeah. And, even, and, you know, and sadly, even if it's just 15 bucks, that's what we were doing at the time. We got submissions because we were like, oh, you're paying. Great. <laughs> and some of it was people's stories people had trunk. Sometimes it was uh, stories people had just sent, uh, wrote for us. Um, mm. We reached out to a couple people that we knew in the scene. Matt Spencer, for example, uh, who got who was really excited that he's the only person that we actually serialized the story for in our, over our first two issues uh, and said, here's what we here's what we're looking for. Uh, we looked at some other magazines out there that we knew about. Uh, we cribbed liberally from their submission guidelines. Um, and also it was both of us looking at kind of our own experience as writers submitting to magazines and what we hated mm. and deciding not to do the exact opposite of that. Uh, yeah. So I think one of the great pleasures um, is, is getting to, when you do this kind of thing is to treat creators the way you would like to have been treated. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, and, and we were really, and we were really proud of that fact. Uh, so, I mean, we had very clear guidelines that we tweaked a little bit as we got a little bit more comfortable with the process and knowing what worked and what didn't, uh, we figured out better in terms of, if you say you're going to open on X date and close on this date, stick to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, if this is what you say your word count is to your word count, you, we stick, we stuck to that. Uh, with again, we made one exception for the one serialized story, and that was it. And after that, we kicked back and said, "No, no more. We're not doing that anymore." Uh, we paid everybody on time. Uh, mm. When somebody submitted, they got an instant response back saying, "Yes, we've received your story. This is one we're going to get back to you by." We actually stuck to our deadlines as far as when we said we would get back to people, uh, which was huge. And I think ninety-eight percent of our rejections were personal. 
Nice. Um, which ended up actually backfiring at sometimes because they would then resubmit the same story, making the tweaks that we had suggested. <laughs> and oh. then we had a hard time saying no again because <laughs> you're like, hey, you actually do what I told you to do. Let's take another look at it. Um, but again, it's it was having the clear expectations for what we wanted for the submissions, uh, making sure that we paid people on time, basically treating them if, as if we were the people submitting. How would we want to be treated? Um, and that was a mm-hmm. large, we were, we tried to be the best professional magazine we could be without paying pro rates. Nice. No, I really appreciate that. I, I'm curious why broadswords and blasters, like what was the decision making behind the choice to be more uh, varied and genre blending rather than say, focusing explicitly on sword and sorcery or pulp detectives or whatever. Sure. The idea was to make it more, a little bit more of a weird tales than just a single genre uh, subject. The other problem was that both Cameron and I appreciate a range of pulp stories, and we didn't want to read all just Sword and Sorcery. We didn't want to read all just Sword and Planet. We did later on. (laughs) So we actually were looking. We wanted to say, you know what? Is it a pulp story? We want to be a new pulp magazine, which means that we're we're, we're, we have a broad definition of that, and we're going to be a big Mm. tent publication within those guidelines. And Cameron's uh, Cameron's a, was much more on the is much more of a sci uh, sword and planet fan than I am, and I'm much more of a sword and sorcery fan than he is. So it actually played to each of our strengths as well. Right on. And I'm guessing even with that broader remit, you still got submissions that were wildly outside of what you were looking for, like Garfield fan fiction or like yeah, you we know, yeah. Any, I we didn't get any Garfield fan fiction. I'm happy to say, <laughs> but one of the things that we did put out that we didn't want was anything that read like a pastiche or parody mm-hmm. and we didn't want anything we, di- we didn't want religious or political analogies or par- or we didn't want any parables yeah we still got those so it's like so the question was does it work as a story first if there's a moral or something that you're trying to work in there and it's on the and it's in part of the story but it's primarily an action adventure story first then we'll ser- seriously consider it if it's one of the, if it, you're just being heavy-handed with this is the political ideology that I'm putting forth and this is what I want to do. And yeah, it's not going to work for us. But again, we try to be as upfront as possible with what we were looking for. And again, we got people that were, I mean, sometimes you get people that just shotgun out stories to as many publications as possible, hoping to land somewhere. Uh, I mean, we, and we had a couple of stories that we absolutely loved as stories that didn't fit with what we were looking for. Hmm. So we, there's at least one war story set in a modern war. I think it was uh, set in the Baltics. It was a great story, really powerful, not pulp. Ended up passing on it. Fair enough. I think there's one story that I can think of that we kind of made an exception for that, which was uh, Rex Wiener's Camera Obscura. Uh, Rex Wiener is an L.A. writer, probably best known for Ford Fairlane, mm-hmm. which was a terrible movie that was done by Andrew Dice Clay back in the <laughs> 90s. Oh, dear. But, but anyway, uh, he was the original writer for uh, of the Fort Fairlane stories. He actually submitted to us. Fantastic story uh, called Camera Obscura. And we read it like, it's not, it, this is just a weird story. Does it fit well? If we, if we squinted real hard, we could make it fit with what we were looking for. <laughs> and it was just too good a story to not make fit. Nice, nice. Uh, if I can circle back to something you said a minute ago, I really appreciate, and I've been hearing other editors say this too. I think Howard Andrew Jones has this woven into uh, the sublines for Tales from the Edition Skull uh, guidelines. Not really being into like satire or deconstruction of genre as uh, stories being submitted. Uh, I, I find myself that like everything, I, I think that that's good to do those stories now and again, but 
it's a very shallow pool. I don't need to read the upteenth tale about how, say, superheroes can be very fascist if seen from a certain angle. Or, you know, sword and sorcery tales from the 30s uh, might have been a little sexist. It's like, I know. Uh, what, 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 could, I, I'm more interested in sincerity and connecting with that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, no, absolutely. So one of the things that we did actually say for us was that if you were trying to subvert some of the expectations of the story and you could do it well, we were more likely to take you than if you were doing a straight-up clone of a Conan story. Uh, by which I mean, is the hero who you expect the hero to be kind of stories? Uh, or is somebody overcoming additional, um, like a character that you would never think to see in a classic pulp story? Uh, so example for that would be, we did, um, I think it was called Saturday Night Science, Saturday Night Mad Science that we published, uh, where the main character is in a wheelchair. Okay, and it's a disabled lesbian at a science fiction convention running into a mad scientist who's got a time travel device. <laughs> so not really the story, not of who you would necessarily picture as your. I mean, it's not it's definitely not Doc Savage, right? Uh, <laughs> oh, no, no, that kind so, of thing. I'm all over no, no, it. No, Sorry, no, I should but, clarify. This does kind of get us into our next question, though, actually. So because, um, okay. yeah, well, I mean, it was more like people who are like basically seem to you You wonder if they even like the genre that they're satirizing. Oh, yeah, no, you know absolutely. what I mean? Where they're just oh, kind yeah, of poking at it. OK, got you. Yeah. No, yeah. Like that kind of thing. Yeah, or, no, or just like, yeah, you have to have. A, so if you go back and read something and you go, yes, this this was a there's a story here. Are the I mean, there's a, the other saying that goes around is like all your favorites are problematic. <laughs> uh, so there's you, you're gonna if you go back and look at something, you're gonna find a problem with er, with almost everything, right? But if you can go back and look at it, we don't need. I don't need to see Conan deconstructed. Michael Moorcock did that already in Alric. Yeah. Okay. We we saw that. We did that. You're probably not gonna do. You're. I can guarantee you, you're not gonna do better than that. Uh, no. <laughs> But so you have to act, do you actually like this genre or are you just trying to do something with it to make a point? And we would much rather you write something where you enjoy the genre and appreciate it than you trying to somehow take it apart and put it back together again. Um, unless you do unless you're doing so creatively and entertainingly and too oftentimes people just take things apart and leave it there and all uh, now you just have a bunch of pieces yeah and they're not really saying what they're saying is not as profound as they think it is Correct. you know I, it's my experience with that it tends to be a very shallow pool like it, it's important to say some of those things but a lot as you say a lot of them have been said they've been said before I, with superheroes i always think of watchmen like nobody's topped that in terms of deconstructing superheroes in my opinion but anyway yeah so as i said we kind of started bleeding into the next question here so why don't i ask it sure uh the tagline for broadswords and blasters describes it as a pulp magazine with modern sensibilities could you please elaborate on what that means to you sure uh so when we started it what we realized early on i mean i i've got i have a strong appreciation for robert e howard um cameron mount is a big edgar rice Burroughs fan uh but if you go back and read those it, some some aspects really ju do jump out at you uh as far as how race is depicted uh how the characters interact with women how their women are depicted and all the rest just the fact that most of the characters with certain notable exceptions tend to be the manly men uh mm. and pushing back and realizing that you know what the world's a much bigger place than that um and that it, it's really worth pulling from different cultures different backgrounds, different aspects when telling your stories. Um, and also part of it as well is not using race as a shorthand for this person is bad. 
yeah, those, those, the sort of universal qualities of people of various races yeah. and ethnicities and nationalities. Uh, and that, old stories. Uh, so, I mean, if you go back and read something like Seabury Quinn, I think every other story had a Hindu character as the evil person, as the bad guy. Uh, and that was basically, he used that as a shorthand for, they're from Asia, therefore they must be the evil mastermind. Um, or like Yellow Peril stories or things like, it's like, that gets that for us, that's lazy writing. Because all you're doing is using a broad brush, is, and I and I realize why to a to an extent because it kind of saved on word count, and you could kind of do a shorthand for this person is this, so therefore X, right? Uh, and kind of diving into at the time what those cultural views we were tr we were pushing against that, going you know what it's 2020s. We want people writing from different backgrounds and different cultures and everything and different experiences. Let's bring it all in. Uh, I guess another example would be, you know, looking at um, Dashiell Hammett. And if you have mm. a character who acts as a little bit effeminate, you knew he was a bad guy. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> that's the kind of, that's, so what we meant by modern was like, don't be lazy with your writing. Don't try to do the shorthand where the gay character is, is evil. I mean, we're, I would hope that we're a little bit beyond this at this point, but that was our goal at least. Awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm very in line with that as you can imagine for what I'm doing with my publication. I mean, one of the things that, that I, I, that I do in my own writing frequently is yeah. I tend to actually not put in a whole lot of description of the character mm. um, or I'll put in enough where there's a little bit, but I'm, I'm willing to let the reader do the heavy lifting when it comes to character description. So if you want to picture the main character as having a darker skin tone than what I might have envisioned when writing it, yes, great, go for it. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but because we publish a character from an Asian background does not mean that we're not necessarily going to publish a Eurocentric character as well. But the flip side is that we don't want to be publishing just Eurocentric, and we didn't want to publish just Eurocentric pulp. We've seen a lot of that. A lot of that's been done. Mm -hmm. We have decades of that. We're okay seeing something a little bit different now. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Look, look, I mean, there's a great push in Afrofuturism. Sam Delaney, for example, might not be not quite pulp necessarily, but definitely along those lines. Saunders. Saunders absolutely. Like, and if you read that, it comes as a breath of fresh air in the genre because it is so different. Mm -hmm. It's not just another Conan clone, which, I mean, if you read one Northern Barbarian story, you kind of have a general sense of where the Northern Barbarian story is going to go. Let's see, let's mm, do something yeah. different. Let's see something different. Let's bring some new life into it. Yeah. And like, and I mean, while I'm, you know, I, I'm really enjoying checking out, say, what Milton Davis is doing in his publishing sort of empire there, or Fire Magazine, or any other number of other publications. And at the same time, I recently enjoyed a, a Northern thing type story in Old Moon Quarterly. Like, I can still there read those stories. No one's stopping me. They're still being published. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and, and, and that goes to editor discretion as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's what is the, and, I mean, that's also the problem with, oh, that's always the fun part of trying to submit to places is trying to guess what is this editor looking for? What's how far off the beating path can I get? while it's still familiar enough that the editor is going to take it. Yeah, well, that's that sweet thing, I think, from both sides, right? Even as an editor, you're like, okay, people want something new that's also really familiar. Yes. How do I... Uh... <laughs> how do I how do I thread that needle? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and sometimes you go, you know what? And we had this, Cameron and I had this conversation more than once. Like, I don't care if anybody else likes this story. I would have, I would like this. I want to publish this story. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was just a matter of what, 
what works for us and what do we want to see in print and what would we have been happy picking up a magazine and seeing as a story. Yeah. There you go. And and that, and that was a lot of it too. He's like, because at the end of the day, the only, the two people that had control over what ended up in the magazine or the anthology was us. Uh, And luckily we had very, we didn't have that many arguments over what we wanted to put in. We had occasionally, we had a couple of, especially for stories that were on the bubble, but for the most part, we were in agreement with uh, what we would decide to publish. But that was the nice thing also of having the two of us being able to work on it was that it wasn't up to just one person trying to make or, make the decision back and forth. Uh, it was very much a collaborative a- effort on the, both of our parts. Well, and it splits the workload, right? Like sometimes I'm kind of happy that I've got my own little dictatorship with my thing, but at the same time, because <laughs> there's no arguments, it's just me, but. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there, there was a bit of a split of a workload. Um, we both read all of the stories. Uh, so we, it's not like we split up the submissions and just submitted it and, and offered our best 10 mm. to then hash out. Uh, so we we both read everything, Okay, which is, as you can imagine, I'm not sure if you're using first readers or anything or slush readers or anything, uh, but we both read every story that came through our submissions. And what we do is we'd mark it accept, maybe not accept. Mm. Two maybes ended up being a not accept. If it was an accept or in a maybe, then one of us was trying to have to try to convince the other person why they, we needed to publish this story. Um, <laughs> and I know for my own process, what I would do is while I, while I was reading, I would actually open up something in either Gmail or Word with the title of the story and a few notes about the story and why it worked or why it didn't work for me. Um well, hey, you're already kind of into my next question, so I'll ask it anyway, but we're, we're kind of getting into it, uh, which is, yeah, like as an editor, I'm curious, like, how do you work with authors on their submissions? Were you kind of hands-on? Would you do like a round of dev edits kind of thing, developmental edits, or would you just kind of be like, yes or no, this is good or it isn't? Uh, so we were very much a this is good or this isn't uh, kind of editors. Uh, that said, so what we would always, what we do is we would go through all the submissions first. Um, again, I would take my, I would make my notes as I went. Uh, which also helped. And actually, I started doing that after the first round that we ever did. And then, because mm-hmm. I was going back and trying to write rejection letters, and I'm finding myself having to go back and reread the story to write the rejection letter was, ah. was really time consuming. So, taking notes as I read <laughs> actually helped going, okay, so this is what worked in the story. This is what didn't work. And this is why we're going to reject it. Um, or why, or, or and if, I mean, acceptances are easy because that's just, you send it out saying, Hey, we like your story. Is it still available? Great. Yeah. It is great. <laughs> We're going to publish it. Send us, make sure you send us your PayPal, PayPal address and we'll get back to you with any edits. Uh, yeah. the edits we mostly went through, uh, we really did not do developmental edits. We were going through for grammar and spelling. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you made it to the cut where we were going to accept your story, that's what we were looking for. Um, was you, you already had a strong story developmentally um, and you, there wasn't anything in there that was going to kill your story for us. Uh, and so not, not once you never did the thing of like, God, oh, this thing just needs one tweak. <laughs> Maybe I'll work with them on that one tweak. Uh, we did when we started out because again, I think I mentioned, uh, I think I mentioned before the show started uh, where somebody would send us a story and we'd write back saying we're rejecting it because X, Y, Z or just X. It would be it would be a better story if, and they actually wrote back and resubmitted it with yes, change. Yeah, you said yeah. Okay, um, and then we're like, you know what? It is a better story now. We we, we they kind of, they took us at our word. They fixed the story. They sent us back what we wanted. We'd be dicks if we didn't take it now. 
and our submission period was still open. So yeah, we did. We there was a bit of yeah. So we did actually work with especially again early on. We did that. Um, as time went on, we actually sh- narr- shortened our submission window, and it got to the point where we might not start actually reading submissions until the window closed. Uh, so, oh, interesting. So once that happened, we were doing a lot less with the developmental edit, saying, "Hey, we want your story except for X, Y, Z, or except for X," and just would do, "Thank you for submitting. We're not taking your story. Here's why." And usually, mm. and it would, we would actually really try hard to say, "This is what we liked." But here's where it could be stronger, uh, yeah. because we also knew, especially being a sem- not even semi-pro paying, we're getting a lot of writers. We might be their first experience submitting to a magazine. Yeah. Okay. We weren't looking to crush anybody and destroy their dreams <laughs> of writing. It's scary though, right? Because like I have spoken to people who will say, like, "Yeah, I'm getting back into writing after a ten-year break or more," and I'll be like, "Oh, why, why the long break? Did you have like a kid and stuff or whatever?" They're like, "Well, maybe, but really, it was because I got this one rejection, or I had this one really mean like writing teacher who just like destroyed my ego, and it took a long time <laughs> to yeah, put it back I, together that again." Happens. Um, I mean, as somebody who also submits writing, like those reject. Getting rejected is as a writer is like be, trying to be a boxer <laughs> a little bit. You have to learn how to take a hit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, you do. And, and you kind of have to pick yourself back up, dust yourself back off. Go. It's it. They were rejecting the story. They were rejecting me as a person. <laughs> I can move on from this, and that can be that can be tough sometimes, especially if you know you thought it was a a banger of a story. It met all the qualifications you thought they were looking for, and they go back. Yeah, this isn't going to be a good fit for us. Like. Well, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, no, for real, man. I feel like uh, I always try to go in without sounding too nihilistic here. I always try to go in with what I am possibly misremembering as part of the old samurai code of like, I'm already dead. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like, I'm just like, you know, go in and be like, it's, 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 I'm assuming it's going to be rejected. But if it isn't great, and if it is, that's what I already was mentally. That's cool. Like, not, not believing myself, what kind of way? I realized how dark that just sounded as I said it out loud. But just, you know, accepting that it might not be accepted from the get-go. No, there, there are certain publications where I assume a rejection from the start. So Fantasy and Science Fiction Magazine, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I'm going to get rejected from. Okay. Um, Metaphoricist, I'm, I'm used to the same day rejection from there. It's like, I feel like they said the rejection before they've, before I've even sent the email. It's kind of like the dark for horror <laughs> writers, uh, where they, where they're notorious for saying out the same day, like you, they get reject you within an hour, which is great because you can move on, but it's bad. Because, yeah. Like, but you're like, how did they, <laughs> like, even the first sentence wasn't up to their standard. Right. But other places it's like, this has got a shot. I can do this. I got, and then you get it back. You're like, what did I do wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought I had a good story here. I mean, that happens because you you have no idea what else they've got, what else is in their pipeline. There might be another story that's really similar to yours that somebody else wrote, and it's not. It might not even be that much better than yours, but they just read it first and they said yes first. Yeah, like they just don't want to have three uh, tomb raiding exactly. stories or whatever that issue. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> so there there are so many things that are outside the writer's control when it comes to submitting mm-hmm. that the best that, that the best you can do is submit a clean story that's written to the best of your ability. And if you do that on a consistent basis, you've got a much better shot. But again, it's and it's just realizing that you know what? I'm going to submit, I'm going to submit, I'm going to submit. I'll pi- I'll get those rejections piled up and you know what? This is out there. Maybe it's time to write something new and get that back out in the, and get that in the pipeline 
and rolling as well. And it's it's very much a marathon, not a sprint, when it comes to the writing process. Oh yeah, yeah. And getting and getting something published. I mean, you can submit a story. In, okay, if we can switch, in, you can submit a story in 2018 and not see it published until 2023. Who knows? Yeah, that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Uh, if we can switch gears sure. for a second, uh, here's the 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 awkward question that uh, nobody likes to think about and everybody has to deal with. How was Broadswords and Blasters financed? How did you guys tackle that old challenge? So so we did the terrible thing that you're never supposed to do. We put our own money into it. <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, so, oh, no. Uh, so, no, Cameron and I uh, front financed uh, the entire anthology, uh, all the magazines and the anthology, and the idea being that we recoup it on sales, uh, which eventually might happen uh but that's a long process uh neither one of us are marketing mm -hmm. people uh, neither one of us is really comfortable with kickstarter um and then kickstarter was making some moves that we were really not comfortable with um when it came to blockchain and nfts yeah um yeah, I, I realized that you're doing through Kickstarter now, and I, I respect that. <laughs> no, no, no. I was also paying attention to that, and yeah, yeah. No, I know, I know what you mean. But uh, for me, it was. I'll just quickly answer it and then move on. Uh, it, it was a case of I, I. There was one other platform I was considering, but they're not open to the public yet. Got it. Uh, and then the other ones just didn't have as much of a track record. I found. Um, and then you got places like Indiegogo, uh, which might be a possibility, but that can be kind of hit or miss too. And then something doing something like Patreon, but there's always. Every time I even start thinking about Patreon, even as a per for myself as a writer, yeah. it seems like there's something new that Patreon's doing that makes me second guess Patreon. Yeah, they've been <laughs> funny, eh? <laughs> so it's like, is there, is there any yeah. good way? Uh, and so we just went with, you know what? We'll put it on Amazon, put it up for sale. Hopefully we'll recoup at least some of that. Uh, and part of it's as well, I mean, we're both guys in our 40s going, you know what? We could have more expensive hobbies than this. Yeah, it's not a boat. It's not Warhammer 40k. It could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Warhammer 40k versus boat, which is more expensive? Hard to say. <laughs> what in yeah, the magazine yeah. is cheaper? <laughs> <laughs> Well, and there you go, right? Because it comes back to something I think of in the context of uh, while submitting stories or, or trying to get a TV show made or a lot of other creative endeavors. Like, what is your personal definition? of victory of success like what are you going for right and if you're going for like something that is and i say this with no denigration whatsoever a, a hobby you know it's something you really enjoy doing you're not looking to conquer the universe financially with it then yeah like that's a healthy attitude and everything you know why would you torture yourself trying to do a, you know a ton of like fundraising or what have you yeah, exactly i mean the other thing with us is that i mean we kept it strictly we we did a bare bones uh i mean we did the cover we did cover illustrations but we didn't do interior illustrations uh, we did all the formatting and editing in-house between the two of us. I think we did a pretty good job of that. I mean, stuff still slipped by, mm -hmm. but for the most part, we did a pretty bang-up job. But it's like, okay, how can we keep costs down and still get the magazine out that, so that we can hopefully recoup those costs at some point uh, and, mm -hmm. go, and go and do it from there? So if I may, I know you just you sort of answered a little bit. You keep getting ahead of me. It's very rude. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, you know, you say you guys aren't like advertisers and fair enough, right? But what has been your experience with promoting broadswords and blasters? What's some stuff you tried or maybe thought about but didn't? Or, you know, what, what have your, what's your experience been yeah, like? Neither, neither, one, yeah, neither one of us is, like I said, neither one of us is marketing guys at all. And, that, and our sales, I think, reflect that. So a lot of us, a lot of it was uh, so, social media, connecting with people mm -hmm. on Twitter uh, when Twitter was a much more usable platform than it is right now 
uh, <laughs> uh, Facebook uh, and trying to get into different Facebook groups and promoting it that way. Um, that was actually before the whole contemporary sorted sorceries, new, new Facebook groups or anything like that. Uh, Semidero was one that I was part of that was really promoting pulp fiction, pulp writers writing now. So trying to get the word out that way. But honestly, and I think a lot of magazines kind of struggle with this. It's a lot easier to find writers than it is to find readers yeah. because we're competing as for when you're looking for writers, every, especially if you say, Hey, look, I'm paying, you're going to get people submitting and you're going to get, you're going to get mm -hmm. material when you're trying to get people to give money to buy something that is much harder. And there's so many other competing interests for hours, attention, everything. So you're not just competing against other magazines. You're competing against books. You're competing against TV. You're competing against video games, movies, all the rest of that free time that people, that's a limited resource that people have that trying to get people to go, Oh, Hey, you know what? Let me go pick up this independently published magazine. That seems like a good use of my three bucks. Even that's hard. Yeah. So it, that has been a struggle. Um, sometimes it feels like we're just, we're, we're sometimes it feels like you're an indie band playing to other indie bands. Yep. Uh, within the same club uh, and trying to break out of that is really difficult and really challenging. Well, I guess that brings me to the 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 brief uh, death of Rod Swords and Blasters. You guys uh, ceasing publication regular issues after tw uh, number 12. Yep. After that happened, how long was it before you decided, you know what, let's, let's just do this, let's do this again. Let's do this anthology. So, you know, like, it, yeah, how was so that? It was funny because actually with issue 12, we had actually talked about it in advance about six months before the publication of issue 12 saying issue 12 was going to be it for us. And there were a few reasons for that. One was we were both kind of getting burnt out on the process because mm -hmm. it is a lot of work reading through submissions, putting it all together, getting it out there, trying to get people to buy it and all the rest of it. So we we're like, you know what? This is, this, this is going to be it for us. So we did that. We did one last double sized issue. And then when, right after it was published, we made the announcement saying, or right when we made the announcement, it was coming out saying, you know what, this is going to be it for us. And that took people by surprise. But mm. there were a couple of different things going on. One, Cameron and I wanted to still be friends. And we realized that if we kept going until we hated it, that would damage our friendship. Mm. Part of it was, well, is we didn't want to get to a point where we hated doing it. <laughs> like we still actually enjoyed it. So we wanted, we wanted to leave on that high, on that high. We didn't want to leave going, okay, we've, Issue number 20, 22, 23, 24, and we're just grinding ourselves down to dust here trying to do this. That doesn't make, if we're not having fun, why are we doing this? We're not making any, we're not making enough money to torture ourselves. Yeah. So anyway, uh, skip forward a couple uh, to last year and I'd done, an, I'd edited a anthology through Fahrenheit Press that was actually a Ramones anth themed anthology. So taking Ramones songs and getting people to submit crime and horror stories based on their songs to that. That's awesome. What's it called? Uh, Gaba Gaba Hey, <laughs> uh, Ramones Anthology. And again, through Fahrenheit Press. So got reached out to a bunch of crime people, writers that I knew. Thomas Pluck uh, was in there and a few other people. So that, that was kind of cool. Being able to help. Uh, that started off as a Twitter exchange with Anthony Neil Smith going, hey, why has there never been a, a Ramones themed anthology? Because there's been other ones. I think there's a Steve Miller band one that was done. I think there's like a Johnny Cash one that was done. I don't think there's been a Dolly Parton one huh. yet, which is actually kind of surprising to me. Hmm. But anyway, look, but looking at songwriters and, and bands and their output and going, okay, can you base a story off of those songs? They're out there. It's kind of, it's a thing that happened. And like, and we actually were able to sell Fahrenheit Press on doing that somehow. Um, but I, 
So I'd done that in 2021. And I was like, hey, you know what? I'm not editing an anthology this year. I feel kind of hollow inside. I need to, we need to do this again, right? <laughs> so I managed to talk Cameron into, I, I basically sent him three ideas. They say, we can either, let's do either a sword and sorcery, sword and planet, or detective pulp. One of the three. And he's much more of a fan of sword and planet. So that's what we decided to do. Um, I said, and again, it kind of started off as a, as a placeholder title, futures that never were that stuck, uh, which is great. I mean, it, it works <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I like um, it. <laughs> we put out a call for submissions going and we try to give people, I think a three month window, a uh, three month head, heads up. Um, cause we got to get, cause we were expanded, uh, the word count. We said 5,000 to 8,000 words or 5,000 to 8, 10,000 words rather than our previous, which was just two to 5,000. So really opening up the word count to give people more room to breathe for those kind of stories. We upped the pay mm. from $15 to $40. It's still below pro rates. I understand, but $40, that's like, that's dinner, not lunch. <laughs> and we, I think we just did a two week window for submissions. Uh, so really kept the, the submission window narrow, mm -hmm. but again, giving people like a few months notice, especially given the workout for that and said, you yeah, know, we're, we're really going to do this again because mm -hmm. why not? Uh, we kind of, we both kind of missed doing it. We had a number of setbacks last, uh, mostly of a personal nature that kind of ended up delaying us. Mm -hmm. Just some stuff that happened because we were originally aiming for a black Friday release date, oh, yeah, which yeah. we completely missed. And they're like, okay, we'll have it out by the holidays. That didn't happen. Uh, I mean, that was also, I mean, one of the advantages of collaborating with somebody is that you do have somebody pushing it on you to kind of keep you on task. Mm -hmm. If it's me sending Cameron something saying, hey, where are you with X? Or him going back, like, you haven't gotten me back the edits yet. That's where I am. Uh, <laughs> uh, to really just kind of keep the project going and make sure that it, it flows through. Uh, so we're recording this on February 11th. Uh, what is the current status of the anthology? It, uh, it has been published. It is out there. It's uh, we did. We're doing it through Amazon exclusively. But of course, that also means mm -hmm. that if you go to Barnes and Noble, you actually can search for it and find it because Amazon does do extended distribution as well. So we can uh, Kindle, uh, Kindle Unlimited, as well as paperback. And we did a hardback version this time, uh, which wasn't something that really existed when we launched Broadswords and Blasters. So we never did a hardback version. Mm -hmm. uh, of the book then. Uh, but it also means that we don't have to worry about dealing with a printer or trying to get books published or, mm -hmm. okay, if we do a printing, do we then have to store the book someplace in our house where we have no space and then, and yeah. then be responsible for shipping out ourselves? You know what? We understand that Amazon's going to take more money that way, but at the same time, it, we don't have to worry about those logistics. Um, so that's like yeah, that. I think we've all either been there or known people who've been there with the like, oh, my living room's filled with boxes. Uh, geez, and I got an unpaid part-time job just shipping for the next like three months. <laughs> and, and that's if you're lucky and you can move all those books. Otherwise, it's like I've got a where I've got a garage yeah. full of books that I'm never gonna sell. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, scary business. All right, well, I'm going to make sure to link the bejesus out of the anthology in the show notes for the episode, uh, listener. If you're like, how do I get that? Uh, just look in the show notes. You'll you'll find the links waiting for you. Um, knowing, actually, before I go to my last question, I want to ask you, um, if I may, remember I was saying a minute ago, like you kind of have to, with these projects, decide for yourself, okay, well, what are my personal victory conditions? What will happen that makes me think, you know what? 
that worked out nice. And sometimes it's just finishing the damn story. Sometimes it's selling a billion copies. Uh, <laughs> what, uh, <laughs> between the two of those because sometimes you have to be a little bit realistic about these things, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, How, what, what would that be for the anthology for you? What would make you feel like, yeah, okay, that that landed? Um, real. I mean, part the real measure for success for us would be: do we make? Do we at least get in the black with what we expected? Mm. Uh, so I think our total expenses were eight hundred. Um, just, just, just from not including any of the man hours that we put into it. Because if you start trying to factor that in with our daily rates, we'll never see any of that back. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, if we make back, if we can make back the eight, I mean, it, it's a low number. We make back the 800, we'll be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if we do that within the first year, I'll be ecstatic. Because uh, one thing we noticed <laughs> is that even though we didn't publish Broadswords and Blasters for three, pretty much three years, people were still buying a copy or two a month uh, of an issue, oh, nice. so which was, that was always really nice to say, like, hey, what, 20 bucks um, that we yeah. weren't, that you weren't really playing on. So that's kind of neat. Um, but no, that, that, that would be the measure <laughs> of success for us with this. Um, I would love to see it get some traction with reviews. Um, that's always kind of a fun mm-hmm. thing to do and see is when people start, when those reviews start coming in and what, and what people thought of it. Um, I know I mean, the, the usual old saw is never read your reviews. We always read the reviews. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How do you not read your reviews? Like, um, yeah. <laughs> I, and I, I understand where it's coming from, especially because yeah. it, it'll be interesting to see if people are like, well, they should do this differently next time. Well, I don't even know if there's going to be a next time. So if you are going to review it, review this for what it is. Uh, it's, it mm. would be kind of what I'd be looking for. It's like, what, what did you enjoy? What didn't you enjoy? I'm going to focus more on what you did enjoy because you kind of have to look on the, on the, on the light side of things when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, and that's what it's going to be for me. Uh, so I mean, my, and my big hope is that at All least right. people will pick it up and go, you know what? I enjoyed this. This was a fun read. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you want to pick up something dense and heavy and that's your thing, go for it. This isn't it. <laughs> and, I, and, I'm, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> this isn't meant to be, the, the a big grim dark tomb or warhammer or going back to warhammer 40k or anything like that mm. uh which is entertaining in its own way i mean th- these were this was meant to be more lighthearted reading so, like you pick it up you can read a story you can put it down and move on you don't have to i'm not expecting somebody to kind of blow through all 20 stories in one city especially since we ended up publishing over 500 pages of this thing. It, it ended up being an absolute brick of a tomb for us. Yeah, no, I find with, with anthologies myself, I, I kind of like to read a story at night or every other night kind of thing and just, yeah, like, like parcel it out, you know? So it's a nice, it's one with, you, you can do that with chapters in a novel, obviously, but there's, I find you get a little satisfying uh, experience per story, uh, you know, and, and that's really nice. So yeah, that, w- that would be the biggest success for us. Though is, is and also see you know it get picked up in the community and going oh hey you know what it's nice to see Sword and Planet isn't dead there's still there's still room there's still stories that can be told within that subgenre. Uh, yeah, I, I really like it myself. I, I want to read more and get deeper into it. Uh, so maybe I should read this anthology, Oliver. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, it's certainly um, I would not mind if 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 things go further. He said in the middle of the Kickstarter, so he doesn't know yet. But if things go further with my own little thing, I wouldn't mind doing like a Sword and Planet special issue. Yeah. You know, just like magazine format, but like focused on just that. Like because yeah, I think it's a cool genre, and I I would love to see uh, even more uh, of it uh, come yeah, out. Uh, one thing I will say, if you're going to do that, one thing you actually kind of need to 
make sure that you do though mm-hmm. is especially if you're looking outside of the usual scene yeah make sure people know what sword and planet is yeah because we, yeah. we had actually had a, quite a bit of that going oh we're doing a sword and planet anthology and people were like great what the hell is sword and planet <laughs> yeah i think the battle there is even a little harder than sword and sorcery where people will be like oh i know what that is but then they you know you ask them to elaborate and they describe like high fantasy tolkien stuff and you're like well i don't want to be the combo shop guy here you know but <laughs> it is actually a specific subgenre with some differences uh, but then it's yeah. exciting it's not about gatekeeping and telling people they're wrong <laughs> it's about saying hey there's this other flavor and i think that's something i think in, in our discussions of all this stuff i i would love it if somehow we could raise the level at which we all feel comfortable saying i'm talking about one of many flavors i can talk about that flavor without inherently crapping on everything else <laughs> you know because you always have to put in these qualifying remarks like well i'm not saying uh, lord of the rings is bad but i like conan <laughs> or whatever yeah, like, it, or even more to the point it's um so i don't have anything against uh high fantasy high fantasy has its place absolutely hmm. but then you look at so okay so what there a lot of discussion can kind of roll around with so what killed sword and sorcery yeah. or, or at least for a bit in this and you look at okay so after the conan movie came out in 81 you saw a lot of kind of bad b-movie clones that tried to capitalize on the success which kind of which helped kill the genre a little bit publishers weren't really publishing sword and sorcery per se the big thing at the time was things that were like shinara which was a what i like to describe as the airport knockoff of tolkien um and there's a there's space for terry for brooks in there but still it's like that wasn't really where the genre was going in the 80s uh, and then you, mm-hmm. it was the lancer paperbacks um i mean it, it was it's really interesting because i mean my first introduction to conan was probably the movie um just based on my yeah, demographic for a lot of people yeah but i mean the one thing i know this is way off topic but the thing that i, th- I think that helps keep conan in the public mind was a couple of things. One was the Sprague de Camp uh, anthologies, okay, as 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 Absolutely. bad as they could be, uh, and they and they could be very hit or miss. The Marvel comics in the seventies, which picked those yep. up, and then the Conan Savage Sword is why I uh, got is, into it, which is how the which is how the movie got made. Like the movie would not have happened yep. if the comics hadn't got it published. The comics would not have happened if Sprague de Camp hadn't happened. So it, it kind of does flow over, over those um i mean my i think one of my biggest like what ifs is like what if libra had ended up being as big as howard uh as far as pop yeah. culture goes because i mean you talk about fritz libra in within the context of sword and sorcery and lots of people who know sword and sorcery are like oh yeah absolutely the farting gray mouser got it talk to somebody outside the circle or outside the community they're like who Not no idea clue. um no. And so, so unless you're into like 1960 science fiction or you're into the sword and sorcery scene, it's like, this is somebody who should probably be better known and isn't. Why is that? Uh, mm-hmm. But I mean, I think a certain thing is kind of happening as well. Uh, Rogers, the last name uh, was a big science fiction and fantasy writer. Uh, and he seems he passed away in the 90s and seems to have been forgotten to an extent. Uh, yeah. but now that, uh, Stephen Colbert, Stephen Colbert is talking about to producing a Chronicles of Amber TV show, maybe it'll get people back mm-hmm. into the last again. I mean, one can hope, right? Um, 
Yeah, well, definitely reprint the Amber books, but uh, but yeah, I mean, the eighties and, and the sort of going fallow is how I think of it. Uh, you know, of sword and sorcery, where it didn't completely be eradicated from this earth, but yeah, it, it, it went way dark for a long time, and it genuinely feels like it's on the rise. I'm seeing more. Yeah discussion and indie pulp and a lot of shows that really kind of are sword and sorcery but people just don't use the label like yeah i think a big part of the battle is is, is kind of like with sword and planet just being like okay like you may already be a sword and sorcery fan you just don't realize it or just being like hey you know this is this other well, flavor it's, it's it's also, fun. i mean if you look at sword um, and sorcery one of my uh having these discussions with uh especially matt spencer uh who does write sword and sorcery mm-hmm. is that uh the, the grimdark fantasy piece kind of evolve that's what sword and sorcery started to evolve into uh because you were mm-hmm. you were talking about sort of the, the outsider character going up against the dark evil um the moral ambiguity a little bit where the you know the character's not out and out a knight in shining armor going out to vanquish the evil it's like why are you killing that monster well i need to get paid or i'm doing it because there's a treasure <laughs> there that i'm after and i'm gonna go steal that treasure but there's a monster in the way, um, and I need I need to eat. Um, so, but kind of that how that evolved uh, into grimdark a little bit, and so. But going back to your point, it's like yeah, it might be foul a little bit, but it's also a question of okay, where do the lines get blurred between the different mm. subgenres, um, and what can you what, what, what can you make out of it, and what are the are there yeah. hard and fast rules? Well, not really. But at a certain point, if you try to tell somebody, hey, this is a sword and sorcery story, and they go and read it going, what? No. <laughs> You'd be so far outside the <laughs> oh, box. I don't know, man. But I, 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 we, we, could, <laughs> we could easily spend another whole hour talking about that. Uh, Lord knows if there's one thing I've joked about with sword and sorcery, it's that discussing and debating what it is and how it went fallow and how to bring it back is part of the genre as much as weird horror and everything else. As somebody who's also written cyberpunk and also gets into, into those conversations, I yeah. understand. <laughs> oh God, yes, yes. So how about we tie this off with a little, uh, you know, this could also be a big answer, but if you just have a sort of can pick the most short and pithy answer to this, uh, that'd be cool. Cause we're getting up to an hour here. Uh, knowing what you do now, what would you, above anything else, advise anyone currently looking to launch a speculative fiction magazine? First, do your research. See what other, see who else is out there and what they're doing. Uh, because the best way for you to carve your own niche is to make sure you're not stepping on somebody else's toes uh, and kind of doing duplicative, duplicative efforts within the same area. Uh, so right now, would I launch a Sword and Sorcery magazine? No. Hell, hell no. You've got Whetstone, you've got New Edge, you've got Tales of Magician Skull. I mean, there's there's a few magazines out there that are publishing sword and sorcery right now. So I would probably try to do something that was a little bit different. I mean, nobody's doing Sword and Planet right now. I'm not sure if I would go as niche as Sword and Planet. Hmm. But if you're doing something like a retro sci-fi Buck Rogers kind of magazine, I could see room for that. I would make sure that you understand what your goals are going into it and being realistic about those goals. If you're defining success as I'm going to be able to launch this magazine and be able to quit my day job within two years because I'll be able to live off the proceeds of this magazine. Please rethink that. (laughs) Don't quit your day job. Mm. Be realistic about how much work it's going to be because it's both it's taking submissions. It's reading the submissions. It's helping with developmental edits, copy edits, formatting pushing it all through. If you're doing something with uh, Amazon, making sure you understand how that whole, the whole Kindle process works 
the printing on demand works. If you're working with, if you're going to an outside printer, doing your research for what printers are out there and what's the most cost effective for you, as well as what can you do for storage and shipping, talking to other people who have used those printers to find out what issues and problems they might, might have run into with those printers, be it shipping delays, paper delays, what, ha I mean, there, there's so many different components that go into making a magazine that can delay your timeline that you are not uh, mm -hmm. considerate of. Reach out to people that are running magazines now, Oliver here, for example, and, <laughs> and just ask questions. What works? What doesn't work? What do you recommend doing? And being open-minded when they say, you know what, I can't really talk to you right now. But I mean, again, don't be afraid to reach out to people who have done this before. You, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, which is something that Cameron and I really didn't do. We, we kind of reinvented the, the wheel a lot of the times when we were doing broadswords and blasters, and we didn't have to. And I kind of wish we had known that at uh -huh. the time. But that was, that was part of the nice thing, too, was that once we launched the magazine, we realized that there were all these other people out there kind of doing the same thing, thing we were doing. Um, not necessarily in the same genre, but we're running indie magazines. And there was a kind of a community there of people doing that, which we didn't even know existed at the time. Mm. And that, But there is a community out there that is doing this. And most of them are more than willing to talk your ear off about the process. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for giving me your time, especially on your birthday, which I didn't realize until I looked at Facebook like five minutes before going to record. <laughs> That's like you, you originally said the 18th. I'm like, yeah, sure, the 18th. They're like, so we're going to talk on Saturday. I'm like, wait, you said the 18th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got it's muddled, okay. man. Oh, man. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> All right, so uh, listener, uh, please go look for the anthology. I will link to it again in the show notes. It will, you cannot miss it. And yeah, Matt, is there any last thing you want to check out before we go? No, that's it. Uh, thank you very much for having me and chatting with me. Appreciate it. No problem. We'll have to do, do it again good. sometime. All right, yeah, bye. Good day. bye. <laughs> so I'm writing a novel. It features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question or otherwise get in touch with the show, please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to so I'm writing a novel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, coffee, and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me and Matthew, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>